divorce. What an ugly term. All right, well, let's, um, let's look at this. Furthermore, it has been said. Uh, we've talked about this. He's referring to rabbinical sayings, rabbinical interpretations of the Bible. And what they were saying was, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this time, when Jesus makes reference to the saying, he actually doesn't directly quote an Old Testament passage, as he had done before. Uh, This time, he actually quotes what the rabbis were saying about this passage, okay? And... uh, they, they were making a reference to what is Deuteronomy 24.1. It doesn't actually say what they say. It says something else. But this is what the text says. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. I omitted the comma. The text continues on. Uh, And I don't want to give that all to you because it's actually not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, But they were using this verse to address something uh, the way they wanted it to. Okay, So this is very different from the rabbinical saying that Jesus was quoting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 31, which says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. The great difference is... The way in which Moses stated things here, that is Deuteronomy, and how the Pharisees twisted it. See, the rabbis spun the text to mean that Moses, under certain circumstances, were commanding the men to give their wives a certificate okay, of divorce and then to send their wives away. The Pharisees even say that in Matthew 19, verse 7. But the rabbis changed what Moses said in Deuteronomy they changed it into a prescription rather than a description. In in Deuteronomy 24, Moses is describing a common practice among the Jews, and then what he was doing is he was putting parameters on it. He was establishing boundaries for it. He wasn't being prescriptive. He was being descriptive. And in Matthew 19, Jesus corrects the Pharisees and says Moses was permitting. So he even addresses this difference and he says he's permitting something because of the hardness of your hearts. So he wasn't not commanding. So the Pharisees were actually expanding on something Moses said. They were adding to the text. And they were perpetuating and sowing what we'd, we would say hard-heartedness among the Jewish men, okay, rather than maturity in the context of marriage. Now earlier, when Jesus discussed the issue of anger and lust, he demonstrated that the rabbis, what they had done is they had limited the the interpretation of law to just the physical act of murder rather than addressing the heart from which is the root of all sin. But here, Jesus is saying not that the rabbis diminished something, but they are actually adding on to it. Now, that's interesting because Moses in Deuteronomy condemned the adding and the taking away from the law. So they're trying to establish a new law to suit their own desires, but they're breaking the law in order to do that. Okay. It's, in this instance, it's one particular rabbi that then developed a school of rabbis. At the time of Christ, there was 
two different rabbis that were butting heads over uh, Deuteronomy 24. The first was a rabbi named Shammai, who held that you could only divorce your wife for some very severe things like sexual morality. The second rabbi was Hillel, who said that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. For example, if she burned her food, you could send her packing. Okay? Uh, if you wanted a, a younger model, you could send the older model out. Okay? That was Hillel's position. Okay? And he said, just make sure that if you're going to do that, give her a certificate of divorce to make it legal. That was, that was him. And uh, so it's this interpretation uh, that Jesus is confronting. So when it came to divorce, Shammai, he basically had it right. So as they say in Hawaii, Jesus got beef with Hillel. Okay? And because Hillel was speaking really effectively, influentially to the men of Israel. And so Jesus is trying to reel this in. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees actually bring Hillel's position to Jesus. They say, and it says they're, they're testing him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And then, of course, they make reference. Uh, they actually appeal to Deuteronomy 24 and say, why did Moses command us? And that's when Jesus says, oh, stop. He did not command you. He was regulating. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment you know, what it would be like to be a woman in the first century Israel with Hillel's interpretation of the Bible as a viable course of action for husbands. You see, at any moment, for just about any reason, as we've said, the husband could divorce his wife as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. Okay? Now, this wouldn't be like in our culture where women can get an education, they can acquire gainful employment, are afforded a number of protections and social safety nets. Women in the first century, if, if they had no family to return to after being widowed or divorced, were often driven into extreme poverty and they were exposed to the worst conditions imaginable. Many widows or divorced women without family were often forced into prostitution or into slavery. And for them, oftentimes women, it was just both anyway. Okay. So imagine the stress this kind of interpretation of the Bible would place upon a woman in a theocratic society. You know, this prevailing interpretation of the Bible being used to such ends. Now, of course, not every wife in every marriage lived under this kind of fear. But a husband could always appeal to the authority of the rabbi uh, whenever his wife didn't please him. Okay? And uh, that would just cause her great distress. You know, every waking moment would be spent trying to please her husband for all the wrong reasons. She would be perpetually walking on eggshells. She would feel insignificant. She would feel used and always uncertain of her future. So those were dark days for women. They should have been protected in Israel according to the law, but instead it was dark days. And of course it wouldn't be the last time that bad people used the Bible to justify bad things. Yeah. So when Jesus says, furthermore, it has been said, or you've heard that it was said, Jesus is saying, you heard wrong. You heard wrong. So here's Jesus' response. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual morality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. 
So obviously Jesus is, he's attacking Hillel's position. He said, any old reason will do, but Jesus said, no, not so. Okay, not just any old reason. According to Jesus, the only grounds for divorce is sexual morality. Now, the Greek word for sexual morality is pornea. We covered this a little bit last week. It's, it's fornication. So we would say the only biblical grounds for divorcing one's spouse is if that spouse engages in sexual behavior with someone outside the marriage, with someone who is not their spouse. Now, at this point in our discussion, whatever your viewpoint might be, you at least have to allow for an exception in some context for divorce because the Lord provides one, doesn't he, in the text? He provides one. We'll come to that more later. An important issue here for context, it becomes super important later, is that Jesus' audience is Jewish. Hopefully that's no surprise to you people. But these are the covenant people of Israel. And because of that, Jesus imposes the authority of God's law upon both parties in the marriage. Both parties in the marriage were treated as covenant people. They're, they're accountable to the, the instruction of God's word. So he just lays it on them. But some of the instruction regarding marriage is going to be modified later on as soon as the apostles take the gospel outside of Israel and, and, uh, and start preaching to a pagan culture. In that context, uh, like when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll find believers who end up uh, in a situation where they're married to an unbeliever because one person in the marriage responded to the gospel, they're saved. The other person did not respond and they're unsaved. Now you have an unbeliever married to a believer. So now what? Well, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Some of the, the, um, the boundaries change a little bit. And we'll look at that uh, when we get to Matthew 19 as well later. <laughs> Let's come back to our text. Again, Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual morality causes her to commit adultery. Causes her to commit adultery. What does that mean? How does the husband cause his wife to commit adultery if he divorces her? Is she automatically considered an adulteress because of what, what the man did? I don't think so. The Greek, the Greek verb to commit adultery is in the passive voice. Therefore, Jesus doesn't say what she is, an adulteress, or what she has done, committed adultery. He's talking about the position her husband has placed her in by divorcing her. Okay? She does not commit adultery by her husband's actions. What's happened is by divorcing her, the husband puts her in a position where she will be tempted to commit adultery, to avoid poverty, or worse. Who's the blame being shifted to? It's the husband. William Hendrickson renders the passive verb this way in his translation of the text. Whoever divorces his wife except on the basis of infidelity exposes her to adultery. Okay. The NIV renders it this way, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her the victim of adultery. You get a little better idea that way. Now, it's true, the woman will certainly be held accountable for any moral decisions that she makes, but it's her former husband who will bear the brunt of God's judgment. 
You see, Jesus is addressing the problem of the men of Israel. He's not addressing the problem of the women. Okay? He's getting after them. He's getting after the school of Hillel and for the damage they've done both to the interpretation of the word and the ramifications of that in the culture. Okay? Destroying people's lives. There's grave consequences for those who would force others into a position where they're tempted to sin in order to survive. Okay. All right, one more part of the passage here. Let's look at that. He says, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the first part of the verse was warning to husbands who thought they could just divorce their wives for any reason. He says they would bear the consequences of unjustly exposing their wives to adultery. This part is a warning to any man who might want to rescue a woman who has been abandoned by her husband lest he commit adultery by marrying a woman who should still be married. That's the point there. You know, there are other ways to help a woman in this position, right? Okay. And uh, at this juncture, marriage is just not one of them. Before second marriage is pursued, uh, in our context here, repentance should be sought from the, the original husband, and every attempt should be made for reconciliation. Okay. So according to Jesus, this woman should still be married to her husband, at least at this point. So that's the interpretation of the text, at least that's my interpretation. And at face value, Jesus' words are clear. They're direct, okay? I don't think that on its face it's a difficult passage to understand. I would take a vote on that, but I'm afraid I'm, I might not be satisfied with the favor I get. We can say in conclusion that for God's covenant people, where two believers are married to one another, a divorce is only permissible when one of them has been sexually immoral. That is, they've engaged sexually with someone who is not their spouse. Otherwise, the divorced woman is exposed to adultery, and the one who marries her commits adultery. It's pretty simple, isn't it? I think it's simple. Okay. But as I said, there is opposition to um, this position, I think it needs to be addressed. So I think I meant to say it at this point that uh, how many arguments I would cover. I think I covered three. So if there's a fourth one in there, don't judge me. Okay? Uh, Especially if it happens to be your position. All right. So the first one isn't super common, but it does exist. Some people believe that Matthew's account here uh, did not originally have the exception clause except for sexual morality. They believe that an early copyist, uh, the early church even, some say, uh, they they added that to the text to meet some uh, current need that was going on in the church. So someone dared a scribe or somebody else to insert that into Matthew's gospel. Okay, Well, that argument would be very compelling uh, if... Uh, there was a single manuscript of Matthew's gospel in antiquity that actually omitted the exception clause. There's none. Okay, so that kind of supposition is dangerous to just throw that out there and say, well, I think. Well, why do you think? So there's a motive behind that one for wanting to take the exception clause out of it. Okay, and I don't want to get into what their motives might be, but uh, it's not a it's not a good thing to suppose. Okay, the argument has no merit. This next argument, um, it's more complex, so you, you're going to have to pay attention. Not that you weren't before, but um, 
And the reason it's more complex is because it, it introduces a thought that is foreign to the language of the text, but for some it seems justifiable because they believe that the thought is there from the entire biblical context. Okay? Many Bible teachers, uh, even my favorite Bible teachers among them, say that the exception clause, so listen carefully, the exception clause is not referring to a couple that is actually married, but to a couple that is betrothed or engaged. You get the difference? I know that in our culture, there is no difference between engagement, dating, and marriage, but there's a huge difference in the, the Jewish culture. I wouldn't say, there's a difference in our church, let me say that, but not in our culture. So if that is the case, if that, if that thought is meant to be in the text, then we should read Jesus' words in verse 32 this way. But I say to you that whoever divorces his betrothed, his fiance, for any reason except sexual morality. So the question is, why do they believe inserting the idea of betrothal is a viable alternative to wife, as we know wife, okay? Well, first, according to the law of Moses, a betrothed couple was legally married. They are not married, but there's a legal agreement between the fathers or between the groom and the, the father of the bride. Okay, there's a legal agreement. But the couple is not actually married. They were viewed, practi- not practically, they were viewed legally as being married, but not practically. Because see, they were promised to one another, so they're off limits to everyone else. Okay? Um, they didn't live together. They were forbidden to be alone with each other. And they certainly wasn't, weren't having sex, okay? because they had not yet ratified the marriage covenant, which actually consummates the marriage. I know there's this common thought that sex, for some reason, consummates a marriage. There's no Bible text that says that. Okay? It's the covenant itself between a man and a woman and their God that consummates a marriage. Okay? It doesn't somehow come into effect on the wedding night. Okay? So if you have that in your mind, please dispel that. It's unbiblical. All right? So they would say, the proponents of this position, that Jesus is talking about engaged folks rather than married, that a certificate of divorce would have to be uh, issued, submitted, if you will, um, to make the divorce legal. Now, as, as true as that scenario may be, is that what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 5, 31 through 32? Was he talking about couples who are engaged, or was he talking about those who are actually married by covenant? Well, now we have to dig into it, don't we? There has to be some grounds for such a thing. Otherwise, I won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. In Matthew 5.31, nobody debates this. Jesus is obviously referring to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which is the only place in the law where a certificate of divorce is mentioned. Okay? It's mentioned in the prophets, but this is the only place in the law. Okay? So in Deuteronomy 24.1, rather is Deuteronomy 24.1, referring to a betrothed couple or a married couple. Look at it again with me. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, but he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, on its face, 
I think I know what you're thinking, the text says, but let's look at it. There's two things in the passage that I believe are sure giveaways, okay? First, the phrase, takes a wife and marries her. Takes a wife and marries her, okay? And the second phrase, sends her out of his house. To take a wife and marry her means that he has taken her under his covering and his care. Okay, the word marriage, married in the Hebrew, means to take dominion. It means to have mastery. And it's used in the context of Genesis chapter one through three, that she comes under the dominion of his care, his nurturing, his covering, his protection. Okay, this is no betrothal, no betrothal. Okay, this woman is no longer under the covering of her father. She has left and cleft, as Genesis 2.24 says. She's been transferred over to her husband by covenant. So this couple is married. But then there's the other phrase where it says, and he sends her out of his house. This also signifies that this woman was married and was living with her, her husband. Something betrothed couples were not allowed to do because they knew if they lived together, what would happen? You know what would happen. <laughs> so this does not describe engagement. It describes life after marriage. Okay? If he was merely breaking up the betrothal, that is the engagement, he would just leave her at, his fa- at her father's house. You get it? He would just leave her there. So whatever this passage may say, you guys, it does not make the case for betrothal. It just does not. Okay. It's a reference to married people. And if Jesus were making an argument for betrothal from this passage that is clearly about marriage, he would fail to make his case. Okay. He would fail. And Jesus never fails. All right. There is a story of betrothal in Matthew 1, and I think that some of the language there sheds light on our discussion. So I want to look at that with you real quick. You guys know the story, and it's not even Christmas. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So at this point in the narrative, Joseph and Mary, they're just betrothed, they're engaged legally. They do not live together. They have not had intercourse because they're not married. But the problem is Mary's pregnant, okay? So verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, uh, literally a righteous man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away secretly. Do notice that there. The Holy Spirit attributes righteousness to Joseph for wanting to divorce her quietly, as, to ma- as opposed to making a public spectacle of her. Okay, now, before the, Roman, uh, before the Romans took over in Israel, uh, they... Well, what happened when the Romans took over Israel? They removed the right of execution from the Jewish people. Prior to that, Mary could have been stoned legally for, for fornication. Okay. So Joseph didn't want to make a public issue out of her, so he put her away quietly, was going to. Uh, and the reason, of course, is that Joseph, at this point, he just knows that she's pregnant. He's totally unaware of the miracle that has been performed by the Holy Spirit. So... From Joseph's perspective, Mary's just been sleeping around. Notice that it does not say that he intended to send her away out of his house, as Deuteronomy 24 says, but to put her away quietly. 
Okay. Now, in the English, at least in the New King James Version, that's three English words. In the Greek, it's one word. Uh, it's a word that means to set free, to release, to divorce, or to pardon. The, the ESV just comes out and says divorce. Okay. He wouldn't literally be sending her packing. What he was doing is he's releasing her from the betrothal agreement. That's what that means. Okay. Next verse. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I think that the, the angel's language is important. He says, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. The ESV says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. I, the NIV says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. You see, a betrothed woman was not yet literally taken by her fiancé because she's still with her father. Okay? He would take her to himself after they ratified the covenant. So Jesus' reference to Deuteronomy 24.1 is not about engaged couples, but married couples. Okay? It was only the wife by covenant who was given a certificate of divorce and sent out of the husband's home. All right, one final argument. This one's more difficult than the first, but it's less difficult than the last one. Those who say there are no grounds for divorce, some say there's just no grounds, say that Matthew is the only gospel writer that mentions the exception clause, and therefore it should be held in doubt. He's the only one that uses it. Mark and Luke, uh, they relate similar stories to us, and they don't use the exception clause. They, they say, therefore, we should appeal to Mark and Luke, but we should ignore Matthew's account of it. It's a common argument. Yeah, I think it's problematic for at least two reasons. First, the assertion throws doubt on the inspiration and authority of Matthew's gospel, because it assumes that there's some kind of error in his writings. Well, if that is the case, we should get rid of Matthew altogether. It's my position on that. Okay. The second problem with it, it says that less information is better information. I wasn't coughing, I was laughing. This implies that there is more authority in what the, the scriptures do not say than in what they do say. Okay. The argument says that less information is, is better information, or that less information provides more clarity, which is like saying someone who doesn't see very well sees better, so let them drive. That's the logic behind that, okay? Rather than saying that Jesus adds clarity to the discussion about marriage and divorce, they say that he adds confusion. But why would you make an argument from the absence of information when Jesus speaks so clearly? Okay, arguing from the absence of information is a dangerous method for establishing doctrine. You understand? What the scriptures say explicitly has more authority than what is said implicitly, and certainly more authority than what is not said at all. Okay. It's always best and safe to affirm what the scriptures affirm. Without their affirmation, we lack the authority to speak with moral clarity. Okay. We lack authority. So, conclusion. In Matthew 5, 31 through 32, Jesus is talking about those who are married by covenant. The woman is no longer under the covering and the care of her father. She has been transferred over to her husband's covering and care. The couple is no longer betrothed, but fully married. 
And so for those believers who are married, sexual morality is the only grounds for divorce. So divorce then, under these circumstances, is not sinful, but permissible. Not according to my word, but according to Jesus's. Okay. I say permissible because it's not required to divorce under these circumstances. You understand? It's only permissible. You know, the repentance of the unfaithful spouse and the reconciliation of the couple is always permissible, and sometimes it's even, uh, I would say, preferable. Right? But I have no grounds to tell a spouse that has been cheated on that they must go back to their husband, nor can I tell them that they must divorce, not when two believers are involved. Okay? As I said, some things change when we get to unbelievers married to believers. I'll leave that for 1 Corinthians 7. You can read it anytime you want. Um, now, real quick, in closing here, I realize that when I say that sexual morality is the only grounds for divorce between two believers, a thousand what-ifs and what-abouts stir in people's minds. Like, what if the spouse is verbally abusive? What about physical abuse? What about illegal behavior, pornography? Uh, what about abandonment? And some of you are thinking, well, what about my situation? Okay. Well, these are all things that are addressed elsewhere, and they're, they're treated differently, it's, it, but it's not within the scope of my discussion today to address all of the what-ifs and what-abouts. Um, I will likely address many of those uh, when we get to Matthew 19. I think it's more appropriate in that setting to do that, and I will be bringing in not just the context of Matthew 19, but 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 3. I'll gather all the New Testament evidence, we'll throw it into a pot, we'll work it all out, and I'll try to address as much as I can, okay? Now, if these things are pressing for you, then it would probably be best for us to just sit down and talk about it, rather than for me to try to address it to everyone at one time. Now, others in the room have other concerns because they are a divorced person, and sexual immorality was not the reason for divorce. Some have remarried after divorce that was not on these grounds, and you're wondering, you know, where you stand with Christ. Are you in sin, or are you right with God? Uh, is there forgiveness? Is there grace? Okay, I'm gonna, again, I can't address all of the different scenarios. If, if I was to present to you all the examples that I've encountered in ministry, we would be here for months, okay? Uh, life gets complicated real fast, and uh, it, it takes time, it takes wisdom, counsel, to get to the bottom of things. But again, uh, if, if it's a pressing matter for you, um, then we, we should sit down and talk about it, okay? I would love to serve you in that capacity. Um, if I did not cover... Um, your particular interpretation of Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32, um, I'm available for that as well. And um, we can chat. Fair enough? Well then stand up. Let's get out of here. I will be right here. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you always for your word. It's, it's not for me or for any other human to come up with doctrine. We don't have a sound theological hat to pull a, a good rabbit out of. It's not for us to invent truth or morality, Lord. It's, 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 this is something that comes from you. And, and Lord, I know that this um, 
subject can be very uh, touchy and a lot of feelings come to the surface. And I don't mean to treat anyone's uh, feelings, their, their past, their pain lightly, um, but the text is what it is and, uh, and we must conform to it. Lord, I thank you for my church family and I just pray that you would just continue, Lord, all of us, that you would teach us, love on us, and that when we encounter subjects like these, that you would bring more unity than anything, and that we could have uh, godly discourse over it, and, uh, and together, Lord, pursue your heart in all matters. So, Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.